This evening's talk is about equanimity. Here in Taos, we have what's considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. This sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of the town of Taos. This particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people and is also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in in every season, any time of the day or night, any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering, the mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad lively energies that constitute it. Uh, And they're all constantly changing and uh, living out their life forms as they do on and with this mountain. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on, isn't attached, isn't averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through it, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so our exploration of upekka equanimity begins. Upekka is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddha's teaching, it's included as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. And it's one of the four brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. It's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation of states, effort energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana, ikagata, which is one-pointedness, and equanimity. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before he attained full awakening, full enlightenment, as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go, 
relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling associated with the arising, change, and passing of all internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily, as happens in the deep concentration of jhana, or destroyed completely, finally, as occurs in the final completion of vipassana practice, and who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. In some words from the Buddha, here a, a bhikkhu, a yogi, a meditator, whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is on-looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise. On looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw, or the teeter-totter as we called it, with another child. Both of us just suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in mid-air. There was always a, a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me 
in moments when this happened. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. And because of the small container, the water will, of course, be extremely salty, quite harsh, undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water the size of the Rio Grande River, which is the largest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness or wateriness that the salt is put into. And as we all know, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart which we can meet and look on at of life's everyday experiences, as well as all the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, with what's called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with a specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the other three divine abidings, metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy, the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, as well as the arising of various other states such as patience and faith, that they're all met that they're all experienced and seen, looked on at, evenly through the mind of equanimity. The function of equanimity as an enlightenment factor is to inhibit partiality. And so upeka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can bring this teaching immediately close, right here and now, in relationship to our cooks and the food here in retreat, our amazing Surya, Joanne, and Marta, our Tenzos, and also bring this teaching into our life when we're back home. And this is from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power that you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely, according to the situation, 
in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on, A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung, now in Dogen's time, of course, they didn't have natural gas or propane or electricity. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood and incense for incense and cow dung for cooking, without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and find that the man that the mind is tranquil, serene, and this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated, but rather it's interested and it's appropriately energized. At those times, there isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what's occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or to the factor of equanimity, thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, all phenomena, with equipoise and composure. During the time and culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it was in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. So more likely in our case, the metaphor might be, one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and know, to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the progress of practice, the process and the progress of practice, the development of concentration and the progress of insight to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired by the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the various habits of clinging, attachment, and identification that can create a block, that can create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the 
ambiance of equanimity. Even the subtlety, the subtlety of the habits of attachment, identification, and aversion, or the comparing mind, can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing concentration and understanding to blossom, deepen, and to eventually mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome mental states such as patience, confidence, metta, along with developing vichara, piti, sukha, and ikagata. And as each of you know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, one of the sublime abidings, silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again, first directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. I am the heir of my kama, karma in Sanskrit. I am the heir of my kama, meaning the heir of all of the deeds, all of the actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. That's the phrase. By the end of those those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance and evenness and neutrality in the mind and heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. If this were a Zen session, a Zen retreat, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled in true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though the note was actually from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. It said, we would like you to give the dana, the generosity talk, to the yogis tomorrow. Now, I was not at that point teaching the dhamma at all. It was a big surprise of a note. For a moment, <laughs> equanimity flew right out the window. <laughs> my, in fact, my heart felt like it stopped. The old habit of fear flew right in. I can't. I can't do this now, said my old habit. I've been silent for so many weeks and deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. Impossible. And then the heart and mind relaxed. Saw what had just occurred, and the thought came in, ah, This is my equanimity test, of course, and I can do it. I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world 
to be doing. Until Upeka has matured, we lose and regain our balance and equipoise and the equipoise of equanimity over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, boredom, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt, disapproval, not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as our self, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests as inquieting the attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval and disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when they start to arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference? It occurs when we don't clearly see or don't clearly see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead are blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life. Seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upekka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye, or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning karma or kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was most of the time, most all of the time, wonderfully direct, very straightforward, and very succinct in his teaching. He didn't mince any words. (laughs) So, a personal story. When I first began living in Taos, there were many, many, there still are, many, many beautiful handcrafted things in store windows that I noticed. And at times, I got quite infatuated with them, uh, with all these things that I was seeing. And sometimes I would get caught in the delusion of needing what I was seeing. That very painful contraction of the must-have mind. Over time, uh, after I was living here uh, just a little while, over time I started to do a practice of walking along and looking in the shop windows and watching the process happening in my mind and heart. It took a while. (laughs) Eventually, I was 
walking along and able to look in the windows and just appreciating the beauty of what I was seeing. With great appreciation for the amazing creative capacities of the human beings who made all of these objects that I was seeing in the shop windows. It was a great relief, actually. The Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, tells a story about him being taken to uh, a particular area in London uh, by a friend. Uh, And as they walked along, uh, passing various shops that sell all kinds of little tiny mechanical parts, which is of a particular interest and fascination of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, He said he found himself uh, having some pretty strong inner feelings of wanting them all. And then he realized that he didn't even know what any of them were for. (laughs) I'm sure that every one of us has experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed dislike boredom, resentment, anger fear or disappointment the glossing over the ignorance meaning ignoring these states and pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity we could say that oh it doesn't really matter that kind of an attitude or it's, it's just all fine, it's just fine. Or, I'm totally okay. Accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away, contraction or an inner sense maybe of grasping that we're probably not aware of. This, of course, is not equanimity. But it's actually indifference, the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as equanimity. And we also certainly know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed, dislike, fear, grief, or resentment, that it's extremely difficult, or it just isn't even possible to look on at those moments with a true Equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness and indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood, nor is it produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice the fruit of training the mind, training the heart, through the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving-kindness, compassion, and investigation. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds. The eight worldly winds being praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard that come our way throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes harsh tests and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources, the resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. And from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata, develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise or blame but do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. 
there's an amazing practice uh, that was, I've been told, uh, and maybe still is, occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. I don't recommend this practice, but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the, uh, the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon, this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. This is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And will also possess the power of renewing itself, only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening in that they, uh, as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight, into understanding, they're the root of equanimity. And the first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be. This is the understanding of kama, or karma in Sanskrit. I use the word kama usually. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born. We spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're undeniably the heirs of our kama. So, for instance... Just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. And in some ways, it inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens And the ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship 
to all of the happenings in life, internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind, our motivations and our responses or reactions to phenomena, not due to our hopes and our wishes for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear and so is one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind in relationship to everything that happens around us and within us, what is there to fear? This is then an opening, an opportunity for the heart, the mind, to begin to relax. We begin to know that we can, in fact, change our mind. That, in fact, we're not trapped on the karmic wheel, running around and around and around like a little mouse. But, of course, as each one of us has experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of the good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some sort of hardship in our current life. Our practice itself This incredible training of the mind and the heart is a very good deed, really the best, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in and through all aspects of our life. As we take or engage in this refuge, we gain the great strength of evenness, of the evenness, balance, and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, with the development and blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that, in fact, we have the strength to endure when we need to endure and to see clearly when that's what's called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of kama can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance, a wholesome disgust as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves 
from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of the deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed. The word in Pali is tanha, and it's uh, usually translated as insatiable thirst. The escape from insatiable thirst. So the first insight that is the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of kama. And we'll be exploring kama in more depth together in a few days. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and understanding of anatta, not-self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and that disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So, for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours is criticized or is blamed, one thinks, I am blamed, and equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something that we've done, one thinks, I've been praised, I'm a success. Equanimity is again disturbed. If this or that work we've done doesn't succeed and isn't praised in the way that we want it to be, one thinks, my work has failed, or maybe I have failed, and equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one thinks what's mine has gone, and equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion with the identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an ease, easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all of the possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, with that thought itself maybe being quite a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things, from which it's pretty easy to detach oneself, gradually working up to the possessions, goals, and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts Massachusetts was for two months and I was the very first visiting teacher there. I was there long enough to really settle in. And yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in, it wasn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and sometimes pretty surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a phone which in moments felt like it was certainly for me. And uh, there was a degree of tension and stress in this. But in truth, the phone uh, was for the many, many others that would be using the house over many years. At one point, I was told that it was okayed, that a phone would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown. (laughs) Well, at that point, there was a quick letting go. And there weren't any more thoughts about it occurring. I relaxed. 
and I really truly felt that it just didn't really matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not as it wasn't for me it wasn't mine it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of the house Jeannie, the housekeeper, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly was not a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone. And I noticed that it's really a, a quite a different experience in the heart with this. Not the subtle contraction of something being mine, something being for me. There was an openness, a spaciousness, no contraction, no clinging in the, in the choosing. And it was much more fun that way. So the small things at first that we think are ours and working up to giving up or letting go, relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self, beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of those being who I am that we give up, that we let go. Beginning with small aspects of our personality. Qualities of seeming minor importance. And very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we may regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity? with this or that being who I am, being me, even including the positive emotions or aversions and the special gifts, the specific gifts which we might regard, which we might be identified with as the center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? Thus, the teachings and practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind, of heart, is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of kama, and the second being anatta. Equanimity is also seated and grows along the way of our samatha practice and blossoms in a very profound way as the deeper states of concentration, jhana, occur, and particularly profoundly when one accesses the fourth jhana. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, equanimity. It isn't cold. It isn't heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but out of a fullness, out of a completeness of connection 
and understanding. At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, and mature, concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other along with an imbalance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. With all of these occurring at the point with what has been called a single taste, the single taste of awakening, the single taste of liberation, liberation from the kilesas, liberation from the cankers, deliverance from suffering. At that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the defilements, and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight, understanding, at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one which is manifesting due to one's capacity for onlooking equanimity. And the Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is to be seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. Some time ago I found a beautiful description of the liberated mind, the liberated heart, the mind and heart of six-limbed equanimity. And this is that description. The mind and heart of an awakened one is likened to a clear, well-cut crystal. And because it's clear without stains, it fully absorbs all the rays of light and sends them out again, intensified by the power and purity of its concentrated energy. The crystal can't be tainted by the colors of the rays. Its hardness can't be pierced. Its perfectly harmonious Structure can't be disturbed. In its purity and strength, the crystal remains unchanged. In less poetic language, the equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. It's absolute simply because it clings to nothing. This is our possibility. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and diligence. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all of this, It's inevitable that concentration, mindfulness, and all of the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say. And I'd like to close the talk with two short pieces from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her, to him? 
and the second piece from the Udana. For one who clings, motion exists, and this meaning the movement of the mind. For one who clings, motion exists, but for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.